Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Midrats. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my ever genial co host, Eagle One of Eagle Speak, and we really appreciate you taking time today to listen to another episode of Midrats. For those that are joining us live and uh, are not watching the sports, uh, if you want to, you can go to the bottom of the show page. That's where you'll find the chat room. That's a prime spot to roll in with the usual suspects. And if you have some comments you'd like to make during the course of the show, or if there is a question you would like for us to direct to our guests, that's a a great place to put it because we'll be monitoring during the course of the show, and we would uh, love an opportunity to bring your questions for our guests. And if you have to leave halfway through the show and you want to catch what you miss, or you just want to listen to other Midrash episodes you may have missed, you can always get the full archive over at Blog Talk Radio. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, or you can also set yourself up on Stitcher. They'll all get you what you want. But now let's go ahead and get right into the show. And what we want to focus on today is, is looking at, for the, for the regular listeners of the show and, and readers of my stuff, uh, online, know that uh, one of the, the most interesting periods for, for me is the interwar period for the First World War and the Second World War. And the Navy record during the Second World War, it didn't happen by accident. When you look at that relatively short time frame from the events immediately following uh, Pearl Harbor to the point that the uh, the Missouri dropped anchor in Tokyo Bay, it didn't happen by accident. It, it was a byproduct of a bunch of dedicated people who, through a deliberate, disciplined, and driven effort over the interwar period, developed the Navy that was positioned to be able to succeed. And what we want to do today is look at that mindset process, the leadership in place, and the framework in the 1920s and 30s that was used to build up the fleet and the concepts that enabled that victory in the Pacific and the Atlantic. And our guest today for the full hour to dive into these two decades will be Captain C.C. Felker, USN. He's a professor of history at the U.S. Naval Academy. And if you really like the concept, he's the author of the book, Testing American Sea Power, U.S. Navy and Strategic Exercises, 1923 through 1940. He is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and received his master's from the University of Alabama, and to balance out the pair of Tar Heels we had on last week, 
Uh, he received his Ph.D. from the University of New Jersey at Durham. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, Duke University. Um, but that's okay. We won't hold it against him. And believe it or not, we are not the official national security talk show of the Atlantic Coast Conference, though we probably should be. Cece, welcome to Midraps. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Sal. Perfect. And uh, I just wanted to, to, to start things off, just to kind of set the table and to, to, to help our listeners get into the mindset of our predecessors who, during the interwar period, really did a, a remarkable job. And let's go back to uh, when my grandfather, as a third-class petty officer, was, was stepping off his service of the USS Arkansas BB-33. We got to participate a little on the naval side of the house in the First World War. We had been serving with the Royal Navy, and we, we got to see from their experience and our experience getting across the Atlantic to help resupply as well. So we're coming off that First World War, and we're looking forward as a Navy. What was the mindset of the leadership in our Navy, and what were those lessons that they took from the First World War from a Naval and Marine Corps perspective that helped them devise a plan of where they wanted to go for the 2021? Well, I think senior Naval officers and probably, you know, juniors as well, you know, after 1918 would have looked at events uh, and since we know the Navy, you know, the United States entered the war uh, in the spring of 1917 so that, you know, we were only in it for a little over a year, a year and a half, I think the the, the common theme would have been status quo. Uh, I think naval officers would have looked at the war and what they what they saw uh, was a missed opportunity by the British at the Battle of Jutland that the United States Navy would never repeat. What they should have seen, probably, uh, or paid a little more attention to, was what the Navy actually did uh, substantively in, in World War One, which was anti-submarine warfare. Uh, a lot of convoy escort, a lot of uh, ASW uh, patrols uh, by aircraft, a significant uh, increase uh, in the numbers of airplane and naval aviation. Uh, but I think in the in the soon after the war, naval officers would have said, you know, it's, the fleet is still a battleship-centered fleet. Uh, Mahan is still valid. Uh, decisive naval engagements are the uh, is is what the, the navy ought to be uh, preparing to fight, uh, and we will incorporate new technology to support the battleship, not to supplant the battleship. Within a year, though, things are starting to change. By 1919, the the U.S. Navy General Board has authorized the uh, the Jupiter be converted uh, into Langley, uh, the first aircraft carrier. Uh, I guess naval officers could have taken heart when the United States refuses to join the League of Nations. Uh, but then in 1922, the bottom kind of falls out of the Navy when President Warren G. Harding and his Secretary of State Charles Evan Hughes negotiate the Washington Naval Conference, which essentially reduces the, the battleship strength of the three major naval powers, the United States, Great Britain, and Japan, down to a level in which neither of those three nation states would be able to project power beyond their spheres of influence. You know, for the United States, that would have been the, the Eastern Pacific uh, and the Caribbean, and the 
Western Atlantic, for the Brits, the Mediterranean, Eastern Atlantic, and for the Japanese, the Western Pacific. And so now naval, the Navy's in a quandary. You know, how does it fight a future war with either the British, which I don't think was that likely and they knew it, but more importantly with the Japanese, given the reduction in the one platform that they deemed critical to winning at sea. And over the ensuing almost two decades, uh, the Navy tried to sort out those problems, that, that problem, in a, variety, in, a, in a series of exercises called fleet problems in which they incorporated these new technologies that, uh, that had, were around, but the Navy had not had the opportunity to use in a significant form in actual operational experiences. I think I you go on, that you know. your question. Yeah, sure did. I, 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 I think we still have... a mute 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 button again. Mute button. Uh-huh. Um, Keep Over to you. Yeah, yeah. The uh, at the end of World War One, U.S. Navy really had not gained much in the way of any kind of combat experience, and um, I, I think in your book you discuss that that one of the main uh, achievements of these fleet uh, exercises was to if not give them actual combat experience, but certainly give them experience operating as as large forces trying to implement some kind of strategic uh, effort. Uh, as, can you kind of describe, you know, how, who got this this uh, these fleet exercises started, and and what were the what were the strategies initially that they were trying to to invoke as they as they set these things up? Sure. Well, the the fleet problems themselves were. We're, we're part of a, a larger exercise period known as a, a period of fleet concentration. So the entire United States fleet would gather uh, either in the, uh, the Caribbean, the, uh, the Eastern Pacific, out of Hawaii, somewhere. And, and these, these periods of fleet concentration would last, you know, weeks, almost well over a month in, in many cases. Uh, most, most of the time was spent doing tactical, tactical exercises, but at one point, you know, the, the fleet would, would get together for what was called a, a fleet problem. So the commander-in-chief, excuse me, the chief of naval operations uh, would provide the commander-in-chief of the U.S. fleet essentially a problem to solve, uh, usually in concert with, with the commander-in-chief U.S. fleet. It's an interesting relationship between the two. Uh, Sinkus, as he would call, would, would delegate uh, problems to two subordinate fleet commanders uh, who would then you know, develop strategies to achieve, to, to find a solution to the problem, uh, and then that problem would play out at sea. And the, the problems were not, they're, they're not sequential, they're not serial, they're not tied, necessarily tied together. Uh, so there are, there are a variety of different types of scenarios uh, that, that were looked at, many of them associated with the future orange war against Japan, although a couple looked at uh, fighting the British, uh, most of them, a lot of them tested uh, naval aviation, tested submarines, tested anti-submarine warfare in a strategic sense. Interesting, towards the end of the, of the 1930s, uh, the exercises, you know, take more, I would say, more of a realistic tone because by that time, you know, uh, the progressive advance across the Pacific is, is the accepted strategy. So we see these, these exercises taking on more of a, a progressive nature. And even in the, the 1940 exercise, uh, you know, it looks at a scenario in which a, an Axis nation tries to arm 
and, and an insurgency that's going on in a South American country, you know, just a notional South American country. And the Navy is ta- Navy Admiral is tasked to uh, to stop that shipment of arms uh, and upsetting, you know, and upsetting the balance of power in South America. So, you know, a variety of scenarios uh, tested. Uh, and as the 20s and 30s go on, incorporating more and more and in, in more meaningful ways, you know, those types of, of weapon systems, which were at one time considered auxiliary or supplemental to the battleship. For the, the fleet problem, how were those related to uh, or were different than the war games that were being done up in Newport at the Naval War College at the same time? And from the modern context, if people are trying to get an idea of how they were structured and run, uh, how do they compare and contrast to what people in the modern era would know as a COMP2X or a JTFX? Well, that's, that's a great question because I was thinking about that just a, a few days ago because you know my experience, uh, like yours, goes back to the uh, goes back to the 80s. Uh, you know, the COMP2X, the Fleet X Basic, the Fleet X Advance, and then you uh, went and deployed. Uh, I guess the, the the similarity or, or the, the main difference between the two was, to me, was well, let me get back to the War College. I didn't see a lot of connection between those War College games and the actual fleet problems themselves. Now, and that's it's kind of an interesting point. The, the sense I got from reading the documents, particularly the uh, the reports from the flag officers from the from the uh, from the commanders, was that they they sensed a difference between what went on at Newport and what went on at sea. Uh, to them, you played war games at Newport, you solved fleet problems at sea. And I don't think those two words, games and problems, are they're, they're not insignificant. I mean, I, I, thought, I think these, these, they didn't diminish the importance of the war college. Uh, in fact, on many occasions, on most occasions, war college faculty members were brought, you know, down to be umpires and judges for these uh, for these exercises, but I, I really think the admirals, you know, that were serving during these or commanding during these exercises, felt that the the only true way you were going to learn how to fight was if you were actually out at sea operating. So, what's the difference between what was going on in the 20s and 30s and what went on in our early careers in the uh, in the 80s? Well, at the end of every fleet problem, there was a a discussion, a briefing, uh, a significant briefing attended by hundreds of officers. I mean, in the records we're talking five, six, seven, eight hundred officers would come together for this uh, exercise debriefing. And in my mind, I see officers assembled in a a huge auditorium. And when you think eight hundred officers and, you know, we're probably talking down to the level of department head, maybe junior department head. So it's it's not a senior audience by any stretch. And then, you know, a, a stage in which the, the fleet commanders themselves, the flag officers, the senior, senior captains, would each go up and explain what they were supposed to do, what they tried to do, and why it worked or not, or didn't. And then at the end, you would have comments from the commander-in-chief of the U.S. fleet. So you've got a four-star, basically, at the, at the end of this. Uh, essentially reviewing the performance of his subordinate flag officers. And I, I found that fascinating. If you're a lieutenant commander or a senior lieutenant sitting in the audience and you, and you see William Vesey Pratt, you know, commander-in-chief U.S. fleet in 1930, criticizing 
one of his subordinate fleet commanders for having tied his carriers too closely to his battleships in an exercise. That, that's got to stick. That's got to stick with you. Now the difference is, I can't remember ever getting any type of a debrief at the end of a Comp Two X or Fleet X. We would get on the ship, we would go out there, fly our missions, do our thing, and then we would come home. And I never heard anything after that. You know, there was there was, you know, no trip to to Charleston or to Norfolk to sit in the room and say, okay, here's what happened, guys. You know, the consequence. I, I never really knew what was going on in the exercise. But I think naval officers had a better understanding in the 20s and 30s when they went out and actually, you know, did these exercises. What was going on? They, you know, fleet wide, not just on their own little platform, but they got an understanding, you know, the, the so-called big picture. And then, you know, even more importantly, is is watching or listening to the flag officers explain what they did, and then seeing them being critiqued by their seniors. I mean, I, I think that that had a that had to have had an extraordinary effect on, you know, the officers attending those uh, those debriefs. You know, um, I want to go back to something you talked about earlier, which was uh, um, in, in, in is, and I want to make sure I say this, but I think, I think in your book you state that Mahan had a maxim that technology has no effect on, on strategy and that one of the, one of the, uh, end result of these fleet axes was that that uh, maxim was uh, kind of <laughs> was the impact of that maxim was lessened on the U.S. fleet. Could you could you uh, walk through that? Yeah. Well, I think my my interpretation of uh, Mahan and if Armstrong's out there, you know, he's certainly welcome to join in and and, and throw me under the bus. But uh, is is it Mahan was a student of history and the uh, the, the the presentations he gave at the Naval War College, you know, was was based on his, the the history of the age of sail, uh, and he came to the conclusion that from history, you you can synthesize history into principles that stand the test of time. The problem was to him that technological change was so erratic, and it was change that you could never distill that down to principles that, that had the same lasting strength as, as history. Naval officers in the 20s and 30s experienced, and they experienced this, and Mahan didn't experience this, but naval officers in the 20s, 20s and 30s experienced the consequences of airplanes and submarines and anti-submarine warfare and even amphibious warfare in their exercises, which, you know, that Mahan could not have found in the history. And as a consequence, at least my argument is, you know, they had to broad, broaden what were the, you know, the, the rather rigid contours of, of Mahan to incorporate these new technologies, and not just necessarily as auxiliary to the battleship, but in the case of naval aviation, for example, you know, almost equal to the battleship when it came to determining sea control. I mean, when they figure out that that you can fly, that you can detach carriers from the battle line, you can fly airplanes for long ways. These airplanes can drop bombs on ships, including battleships. Then that that you know what that does is it loosens up the rigidity of the Mahanian paradigm. It doesn't go away completely, and it, it and it shouldn't have because, as I argue in the book, I mean, Mahan gave the Navy purpose. It gave the officer corps meaning, coherence. Okay, so, you know, naval aviation didn't destroy Mahan, but what, it, what I argued is it stretched it. 
where it demonstrated to naval officers that you know they, they had to take into consideration modern weapons when trying to figure out how to fight a modern naval war. It seems counterintuitive today, but I think they, they were struggling with it in the 1920s and 1930s. And that's why if you look at those exercises, you know, over time you see that you see commanders being less and less rigid when it comes to using, you know, weapons such as airplanes and aircraft carriers and submarines. While you've been talking here, I just I, I kept going back to that that vision of hundreds and hundreds of naval officers, just like you were saying, uh, sitting there in a debrief. And when you look at the 1920s and 1930s, people weren't hopping on airplanes for a quick flight to to Norfolk or Newport. People are getting on trains. It's a multi-day uh, evolution just to get to a certain place and location. If you look at the size of the navy at that time too. Um, and I'm sure people weren't going from coast to coast, so you're just limited to either um, Atlantic or Pacific fleets for those gatherings, more or less. Uh, that's a huge percentage of your naval leadership is sitting there watching a, a four-star critique, a one-star or a two-star. Um, and it, it just puts into my mind, you know, here we are in the second decade of the 21st century. We have all the advantages of transportation, communication, computer systems. Um, and yet, as I know the, the, you see up close in detail there in Annapolis, there has been a hunger for a half decade plus of you know, trying to get a handle about you know, what is our naval strategy, what do we need to do, what units do we have to do that. When you look at what they were doing in the 20s and the 30s in, in that format, because I just I think they were our deployment workups, and, and all we know is you got the check in the block, and uh, we're headed east, right. or we're headed west, right. one of the two. That's it. Uh, I, I know what happened on my watch. Nobody yelled at me, and uh, so, uh, yeah, that, that's fine. We're going forward. But you don't learn anything from that besides the fact you need to get the check in the block. So, right. Is there anything and that that people have looked at what was done in the 20s and 30s that were really able to get that extra value added out of there? And it does kind of make sense, and, and um, maybe you know of who I'm speaking with, but um, there have been at least uh, two biographies of leaders in World War II who were talking about the march across the Pacific in, uh, in, in 43 and 44 and in 42 as well. It basically said, I knew exactly where we were going and what we were doing because I've already done it two or three times before as a J.O. Um, right. Is there something that, that we could look back and maybe adjust how we do our, our battle group buildups to help reinforce that intellectual development of our leaders? Because at least from my data point, and I think it overlaps with yours as well, we just got the check in the block. Yeah. Well, I, I – you know, I think today we, we face the – in fact, I was reading Admiral Richardson's uh, design for maritime superiority, and one of the points he makes, you know, he, he, one of his bullets under the strength of naval power at and from the sea is test and refine concepts through focused wargaming, modeling, and simulations, validate these concepts through fleet exercises, unit training, and, and certification. But how do you do that in, in an age where, you know, you're operating your, – your, your budget, your steaming days – you know, are consumed by 
real world operations leaving you know not so many uh for for exercises when the when the deployment uh, schedule is such that you have you know crews have very little time when they get back from port to just kind of relax and just and just kind of decompress before they've got to get ready for the for the next deployment uh how much are you willing to rely on computer simulation you know and uh, knowing is you know and i'm a bit i guess i'm just kind of parochial or chauvinistic that it seems to me there's a lot of difference between being in an aircraft you know on a on a dark night you know trying to do a mission and being in the simulator on a dark you know which is simulated darkness knowing that the guy in the back can always push the reset button when uh when something goes wrong uh you know, and finally, is like you said, is the is the feedback loop. You know, how do we how do we get, you know, the results, and not just the results of exercises, not just who won and who lost, but but why you know certain ships, squadrons, carrier strikes groups succeeded, and more importantly, why they didn't. I mean, I think the tendency you know today is you know we we downplay the, the failures, you know, we 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 exalt the successes. Uh, but I think it's the it's it's the times we 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 don't succeed are those that we ought to be focused and drilling down on, and as a profession, you know, we we ought to be able to have thick enough skin that we can take criticism for mistakes in an exercise, knowing that you know if we think a little harder next time, we may not make those those mistakes again. And I don't know, you know, like I said, how much. How, how much? How many? How much resources? How many resources do we have to apply to real-world, you know, exercises? And then at the end, you know, are we willing to? And we've got, like you said, we've got all kinds of, we've got technology that could tie in, you know, disparate fleet units together into a, you know, a virtual uh, end of exercise debrief. Uh, are we willing to go to the to the extent where, you know, a a fleet commander or a strike group commander is willing to you know, criticize in the constructive professional way his subordinate commanders, knowing that there are junior officers and lieutenant commanders and commanders out there that are watching this this debrief. You know, if, if we can get – if we're there, then that's great. I mean, I haven't been in the operational Navy for a long time. I, I, I'd like to hope or like to think that back in the 80s and 90s when I was blind that we had that thick skin, that we could take criticism and we'd be better for it. Uh, is that the case now? I, to be honest, I, I really don't know. I know our midshipmen are that way. I can criticize a midshipman, you know, in class, you know, professionally, constructively, and and they get it. So I got to assume that 30 years down the road, those midshipmen that are still here, you know, that are wearing six stripes or four stripes or actually, you know, wearing stars, you know, are able to take that criticism as well. Well, it's it's a challenge. Um in training any junior officer to deliver uh, criticism, effective criticism uh, slash advice that doesn't hurt feelings. And it, it seems to me that, that um, one of the great lessons out of these fleet exercises you pointed out earlier was that they got a chance to see people way at the top of the food chain, uh, hopefully having a, a relatively friendly discussion, although I can imagine a couple of cases when, as you describe in your book, the, uh, the Admiral who had who had blown the opportunity to do something uh, 
got a little uh, defensive about why he hadn't done a particular action. But, you know, I, I can't imagine that that was not a good thing for those officers to see that, you know, that it, that you even down at the bottom of the food chain, you weren't the only one catching flack for, for uh, minor mistakes. Um, but I guess one of the questions I had was, was that you pointed out uh, in the book that, that uh, one of these, uh, these exercises led to, um, um, Here's the quote. The exercise also suggests that the fleet, somewhere between a monolith uh, and a uh, group of naval constituencies, each bargaining to enhance its uh, position and, in some cases, its survival. I guess during these exercises, you know, we had, as you've already pointed out, you had the the surface guys, you have the submarine guys, you have the aviation guys, you have the Marines, all competing to uh, get face time in front of everybody to show that whatever they're doing is important. And, and, and uh, can you kind of discuss how that fits in with the, uh, with what we we're just talking about, the, the, the criticism uh, and the critique of the, uh, of the uh, exercises? Yeah. I mean, maybe not competing because I, I really didn't get a sense that the, the various warfare specialties were competing, but they were all trying to make themselves relevant as relevant as they possibly could to sea control. And, and 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 I think that's the key. So you know, naval aviators. It, it, what's fascinating is naval aviators took a completely different tack than their army counterparts. There was no Billy Mitchell, you know, out there, you know, extolling the virtues of of aviation at the expense of of all other other forms of warfare. Naval aviators were a hell of a lot smarter than that. They were pragmatists. They recognized in 1923, all they got is Langley. I mean, you know, a, a little more than a dozen airplanes, about 14, 15 knots top speed. You're not going to make an argument that naval aviation is the future of the Navy based on that single platform. So what they do, they, did, they, they took a pragmatic course. You know, you, you learn how to safely operate at sea. You know, you bide your time. You support, you support sea control in any way you can, which starts out ASW, flying airplanes, using the Mark I Mod Zero eyeball and helping, you know, helping the fleet commander look for submarines, knowing that in 1927-28, the first two fleet carriers are going to show up. And once those two fleet carriers show up that, that hold more than 60 aircraft that can go 33 knots, you know, now you can put a lot, a, enough wind over the deck that you can actually carry heavier ordnance. And, and so aviators, you know, they, 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 they took a very pragmatic and cautious approach, and by the late 1930s, Carriers are operating independently as task forces. Aviators are dropping bombs, not just, not just on other aircraft carriers, but also on other ships. The Marines are kind of following in the same path. I mean, you know, if you look at the Marine Corps in the late 19th and early 20th century, you know, once we move from sail to, to steam and to, to guns that send projectiles in tens of miles, the Marines are, are looking for work. They've got to find something else to do, and they latch on to the, you know, they, they start latching on to the amphibious mission defensively at first, but then as the 20s and 30s go on, they start to develop the notion that, look, we ought to, as Marines, ought to play in the sea control game, but not at the expense of the battleship. You know, Lejeune, you know, was a very smart guy. He recognized that you're not going to – the last thing you want to do is don't poke the eye in the bear. So what he did was he charted almost as cautious an approach as his – aviator counterparts did to get the marines at least tolerated as part of the whole sea control paradigm to the point where they ensured their organizational survival 
and by the 1930s, they would have some of an, of an offensive mission within the sea control paradigm. I mean, so it's, it's these officers and these various, you know, what were once subordinate warfare specialties, if you want to call it that, auxiliary warfare specialties, that are finding ways to insinuate themselves as closely as they can into the sea control paradigm, some for their, the existence of their organization, others because they think eventually, as I think naval aviators probably did in, you know, in the wardroom, or in the ready room, or in the club, at one at some point in the future, they were going to be able to go out there and sink ships at distances far beyond what a battleship could throw a, sh- a projectile. But they needed time. They needed time. They needed technology, and they needed opportunities to demonstrate that. And that's what those fleet problems provided. I like the way how you outlined how you know ideas have to wait for technology to get get to them, and it's always a far, long lead time. In that vein, I wanted to back up a bit to, to something you brought up in, in your first answer. Um, we've actually did a dedicated show on this last year. But let's talk for a minute about the Navy Board and how it existed and what its responsibility was during the interwar period. Because uh, you mentioned briefly where you know the Navy Board said, make it to Langley, and they did, and it happened. What did the Navy Board do in the 20s and 30s uh, who today has that charter and that responsibility, and what type of timeline did they have that was different than today when it came to making decisions to to develop capabilities and pursue new ship designs? Okay. Well, I mean, it never moved beyond an advisory capacity, so they, they never really made decisions. They forwarded recommendations on to the to the secretary of, of the navy as far as the timeline you know when you look at the records and the, the records are volume this these, these you know they were they were discussing issues for days and for weeks before coming to some kind of conclusion they would bring in all kinds of officers to you know to to talk about it the uh, the hybrid uh, cruiser cruiser carrier deck was was one that comes to mind i mean they were just they were they were having all kinds of discussions it would have been fascinating to have sat in on those just to listen to the discussion. Uh, I, I, I think in the 20s and 30s, the, the, the power is not a good word, but, but the, the, as the Navy became more sophisticated and, comp, and complex bureaucratically, you know, by 1915, we have a chief of naval operations. You know, soon thereafter, he forms his own war plans division. The CNO was just an ex officio member of the general board, which I'm sure, you know, probably rubbed successive CNOs the wrong way. But I think in the 20s and 30s, you see the general board, its influence, that's the word I'm I'm thinking of, kind of declining. Uh, Along with that, as as the fleet itself, as the CNO's organization, the Commander-in-Chief U.S. Fleet Organization, becomes more important. So, you know, what the general board was doing in the 20s and 30s was, was important, okay, but I think it paled in comparison to what the CNO and the Commander-in-Chief U.S. Fleet, uh, their staffs and organizations were doing. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, you've mentioned this before in here, uh, in discussions of far thrusters and what I think you call the cautionaries. Right. And the, 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 the uh, impact of these exercises on the, on the viewpoints of what they were about, could you kind of describe who they were and, and how things uh, developed through these exercises? Well, the, the, the terms thruster and cautionary go back to uh, Ed Miller's uh, War Plan Orange, which 
is is I think the seminal work on on the Navy's development of a coherent war plan against Japan. And, and Miller's argument is there, there's never there's never a war plan in orange. It's always you know it's 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 kind of a compilation of uh, of estimates and of strategies and of documents and you know it, it it was a bunch of ideas floating around that by the end of the 1930s coalesced you know into a vision that the only way to defeat the Japanese was through a progressive advance across the Pacific securing you know the 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 mandates that the Japanese owned in the in the Marshalls of the Carolines, setting up for some kind of decisive naval engagement in the Western Pacific. So it would, you know, as opposed to the thruster vision, which was, you know, war breaks out, the, the fleet, uh, you know, comes together on the West Coast and directly steams across the Pacific and meets the Japanese in a decisive naval engagement in the Western Pacific. You know, by the 1930s, naval officers recognized that that just wasn't really realistic. Uh, and... I think in these, in that case, the fleet problems were were more following what was going on outside of the the exercises than they were leading those exercises. You know, lead, leading that change of of thought as to how you defeat the how you defeat the Imperial Japanese Navy. But it's interesting that you know by by the 1930s, the the Navy is practicing aspects of this progressive advance. You know, in its in its fleet problems. You also mentioned earlier when you're talking about the uh, the fleet problems, uh, the the 21 that were held, I think 10 or 11 were, were focused on Japan, and everybody knows about War Plan Orange. And uh, but once we entered the Second World War, we had another reprise of the Battle of the Atlantic, and right. you know during yeah. Operation Drumbeats, the German Navy had huge success on the Atlantic seaboard, not too far from where I live. They were sinking ships a two-iron away from the beach. Uh, <laughs> during that period, when we were going through the fleet problems, especially with the experience they had in the First World War with submarines, were any of them focused on the possibility of a similar battle of the Atlantic as it developed, or well, did Germany's remilitarization just take place at such a quick rate that intellectually we just never got our mind around it? No, uh, d- never, n- never practiced, never tested the possibility of submarine of of, of, of what became Paukenschlag. Uh And I think the reason for that is, you know, up until the 1930s, United States Navy submarines were were not that particularly capable. In fact, the first few fleet fle- fle- problems. Submarines had to be towed uh, into, you know, down to the uh, down to the problem cells. They were slow. They were mechanically unreliable. Uh, they were not particularly capable. Uh, so, as a consequence of that, you know, I argued that the Navy kind of cut the submarines loose from its notion of an, you know, a, a fleet moving across the Pacific. The submarines would be operating more or less uh, independently, maybe ahead of the fleet, but but operating independently. On the other hand, I think they, the Navy looked at, at anti-submarine warfare, looked at, or did not consider the submarine, enemy submarines for that, for that matter, a strategic threat. I think they saw submarines as something the Navy could manage. You know, it will be a conventional type of, uh, of fighting submarines. You know, may time, you know, will we'll try to attack the fleet as it, you know, as it's transiting, uh, you know, across the Pacific. But you know, 
given the you know uh, an escort, there were concentric rings of uh, of destroyers uh, and cruisers. Then, then the Navy will make it to its destination relatively intact. I don't think they and, and the reason I, I don't think the Navy considered a the submarine a threat or German submarines a threat is the fact that the the, the fleet commander who fared poorly in the last two exercises, a guy by the name of Adolf, Adolphus Andrews, uh, after fleet problem. 20 was, or the last lead problem, was assigned as the commander of the Eastern Sea Frontier, which uh, was basically from, you know, guarding the coast from New York City down to Jacksonville, Florida. So he was in command when Operation Pockenschlag broke out. So, you know, the question I would ask myself is, okay, you've got a, you've got a, you know, a senior flag officer that's not ready to retire, or it's, a, you're, it's not going to retire. Where do you put someone like that who has not shown very brightly in, in exercises. And so my sense is, and I don't know this for sure, but my sense is they stuck him in a place that they knew he could do the least harm. And unfortunately, that was the last place he should have been. But that's because the, I don't think the Navy considered the prospect that the Germans were going to send a half dozen to a dozen submarines off the east coast of the United States and start slaughtering merchant ships. Yeah, and I, I think in, in uh, your description of Admiral Andrews that, that his uh, – Instead of forming coastal convoys, uh, his view was that the the coastal convoy weakly defended would be worse than not having a convoy at all. And he actually dispatched his uh, limited forces to uh, to seek and engage the submarines. And and I think your point was that that was a very Mahanian uh, uh, viewpoint, not not really uh, technologically savvy, given the the state of submarines at the time. Yeah, it takes several months before, you know, Admiral King, you know, directs that, you know, the bucket brigade of, of daylight uh, steaming up and down the coast and then forms coastal convoys. And then by the fall of 1942, the United States Army forms an airborne anti-submarine command. And by that time, and by the late fall and early winter of 1943, and now you've got long-range, libera- or, excuse me, uh, B-17s and then later on liberators that are flying you know, search missions or patrol missions, uh, helping to escort convoys itself. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, the Navy was caught off guard. I think it took a Mahanian, uh, a Mahanian viewpoint when it came to how do you deal with these submarines. Uh, but I think we also need to take into context that, you know, there was a lot going on. I mean, you, you've got a Pacific, you know, fight going on. Uh, we're on the defensive, but nevertheless, within a handful of months from Pearl Harbor, you know, we conduct the raid on the Doolittle raid on Tokyo. We fight the Battle of Coral Sea, fight the Battle of Midway. So, I mean, Ernie Kane's got a lot going on in his head. Uh, and probably, you know, while it was a priority, uh, it was. I don't think, you know, dealing with the submarine menace initially was as high a priority as how do I not lose in the Pacific. Yeah, you can never uh, see the, what the future holds perfectly. I guess the important thing is how you react when reality uh, knocks on the door that yeah. uh, you didn't quite expect it to knock on. But we weren't the uh, U.S. Navy wasn't the only one during the interwar period that was thinking, building, developing, coming up with ideas and concepts. And uh, peers and near peers during the same period, the, the Japanese, the French, the British, uh, the Germans, and perhaps to a significantly lesser extent, the the, the Soviet Union. Uh, when you look at 
what they were building and thinking and planning for. Uh, were there any other nations that really got it right or were completely caught off-footed once the, the war took off, i.e., those that did a good job during the interwar period and those that just did not help themselves at all? Well, I mean, my my understanding is based off of the, the secondary sources. Now, you know, I mean, for the for the Royal Navy, essentially the RAF pulled pulled the Navy's aviation assets away from them uh, and 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 controlled them. So, I don't. My, my understanding is the Royal Navy did not have the opportunity to to develop its aviation component uh, as as extensively as we did. The Japanese, as it turned out, were, were far more Mahanian than uh, than we were. In fact, uh, that's I think that's that's an important point. Is when you look at the ships that they were building, and while they they did use their carriers independently, they were they were as rigidly attached to to this notion of a decisive decisive naval engagement than we were. And I, I think in the in what it did was it hindered the development of, for example, their destroyers, which were focused more on supporting you know, on torpedo attacks and protecting the battleship than they were on ASW. You know, they were poor ASW platforms. Uh, you know, the battleships themselves, you know, were the, the two greatest battleships built during uh, the war were essentially built specifically for the purpose of a decisive naval engagement rather than, than anything else. Whereas, you know, we pared down battleship construction, you know, by 1938 and focused more on, on carrier construction. So by 1943... When that second fleet, and I would call it the second fleet that, that fought in World War II in the Pacific, you know, left the shipyards, it, it wasn't battleships. It was Essex-class carriers and Independence-class light carriers. I mean, you look at the, the fleet that fought from 1942 to 1943, that was the fleet that was built, you know, during and after World War I. You know, and, and, and what, it gave, what it gave the Navy and the country was breathing space for that second fleet that got underway in 1943 to fight the, the Central Pacific Offensive. You know, and, and a lot of those ships, those battleships, those old World War One battleships that, you know, took it that uh, Pearl Harbor wound up supporting, you know, amphibious operations uh, along, those, uh, along that Central Pacific Offensive. So I think, you know, comparatively, you know, I think we learned far more uh, in the 1920s and 1930s than either, even our, our allies or our adversaries. You know, one of the uh, one of the other comments you, you made in the book was that the the way that air uh, naval air power developed um, it it changed the the paradigm and made geography uh, relevant. Could you discuss that in terms of, of the context of what the Navy was looking at in the 1920s and 30s? Well, I think I think conceptually, in, in the Mahanian mindset, yeah, the the decisive naval engagement occurs somewhere in the middle of this huge patch of blue water, and what naval officers learned, particularly by the by the 1930s, was that the islands matter, uh, and you can see that you can see that by the the increasing importance that the navy, although albeit not as far as they probably could have gone or should have gone, but the increasing importance they give to to amphibious warfare and eventually giving the Marines an offensive, offensive mission within the sea control paradigm. So, you know, the, 
I think the Navy finally gets it by the 1930s that, you know, islands matter. You can fly airplanes off of islands. You can drive submarines. You can, you can keep submarines off of islands and, and, and threaten the fleet as it goes across the, uh, the Pacific. You know, and consequently, you know, you can break the carriers free from the battle line and have them operate independently and take advantage of the carrier's speed and its mobility and the ability of these aircraft to fly even farther out. And you can use them in ways that Mahan would not have envisioned, you know, had he lived long enough to see uh, carrier aviation, which he didn't, dying in 1914 or 15. One of the things you, you brought up, which which I like, is, um, you know, looking back at intellectual culture. We've talked it a little bit out a little bit about it here, that, that whole concept of, of having hundreds of uh, mid-grade and junior officers watch two or three echelons above them be uh, openly but respectfully critiqued on. And one of the phrases I like to use, you know, the creative friction involved with discussing ideas in a clear and open manner. And you've gone back in a few places, 100 years plus, to look at what was written in Proceedings. And the question I have for you, when you look at the interwar period with that that fleet problem culture of being able to do this in the open, did you also see that uh, willingness to be tolerant of perhaps speaking off topic or speeding out of turn? Uh, the buzzword nowadays is, is disruptive. Were they open to that type of creative friction back then? And how would you compare the culture and the ability to take critique, to give critique, and to not punish people for being too off-message. I know, you know Billy Mitchell was, was an outlier there in a variety of ways. But th- that culture that we have today in our Navy uh, towards being tolerant to that type of creative friction compared to what you saw in the 20s and the 30s. Well, I'll tell you, you know, having you know, gone through a lot of issues of proceedings in the 20s and 30s. I did not see any lack of junior officer uh, submissions to those to those issues. A lot of junior officers. And I'll, I'll kick that up to the lieutenant commanders. So a lot of lieutenants, a lot of lieutenant commanders, a lot of Marine Corps captains and majors, you know, are contributing and discussing uh, those issues about what do we do with the airplane? You know, does it supplant the battleship? You know, how important is taking an advanced base? Uh, you know, it, it I, could, I guess I would best describe what I read in proceedings or read in proceedings from those the, that period is 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 kind of dynamic. I mean, there's there's it's a it's a very vibrant discussion that's that's going on. It's uh, and it kind of makes sense because I don't even think you know it, while senior Navy leadership in the 20s and 30s might have had an idea of how this new technology or how, they might have wanted to know how this new technology would fit in in a modern war. They didn't know any more than the lieutenants did because they hadn't experienced it. Experienced it. I mean, that's, you know, the, the experiential component of learning is important. And that's why I think these, these, these exercises, these strategic problems were important. And it wasn't, you know, I wasn't really focused. I, I didn't want to get down into the weeds of tactics. I was more interested in doctrine and, 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 and how doctrine changes and how officers learn, you know, through this, you know, through these exercises, through what, you know, historians of science, they call it tacit learning, you know, learning by doing, you know, 
how does that help the Navy? How does that help a military organization reform itself or determine that, you know, its, its ways of fighting need to be modified to incorporate an anomaly, such as technology, which really is an anomaly, but probably was thought of that in the 1920s. You know, I think we still have that. I, you know, I think that it's, it's in the DNA of every junior officer and senior officer in the Navy today. It's just a matter of, of providing a venue, I think, for them to express, you know, their and, – and they have to express it, obviously, professionally, but they also have to – you can't just make a claim. You've got to provide evidence to support that claim. And, you know, proceedings is still a valuable resource for that. But I, I think outside of, of proceedings, and I'm not sure what the readership is today compared to the 1920s and 1930s, uh, but – there's got to be other venues, and and the point you made, and I'll wrap up this this comment earlier, is you know at the end of an exercise, there ought to be an opportunity for those who participate in the exercise to come together through a, either physically or through VTC. So the lieutenants and the lieutenant commanders and the two stars are all talking about what happened, what worked, and what and what different, what didn't work. And I think that that is how the Navy, you know, you know, it's not just the experiential component which is important, but it's talking about that experience afterwards and discussing it, and hashing through, you know, why did we do this and not that? Why didn't we? You know, that that is what facilitates learning in the officer corps. Well, I think in, in your book you point out that of all the successes that came out of this, the, the better use of the submarine force, better uh, understanding of how to use the uh, aviators, the one uh, weak link was the was integrating the Marine Corps and its amphibious operations yep. into the fleet, and it and it it burned us during the war a little bit. Could you discuss that? Well, you know, this is this is one of those conceptual roadblocks that I just don't think the Navy could could get over. Uh, you know, I mean, to the Navy's credit, it at least by the 1930s had incorporated the fleet, you know, 1933 with General Order 241. The Secretary of the Navy, Claude Swanson, says, you know, I'm going to rename the Exp Marine Expeditionary Force to the Fleet Marine Force. Now, those words are important. Fleet Marine Force means that the, that, that, that organization now falls within the Commander-in-Chief U.S. Fleet's warfighting organization, okay? And, you know, within a year, the Marine Corps has its own, has a, a tentative manual for landing operations that, that, that the Navy eventually adop, adopts as a fleet tactical publication. So at least by the 1930s, you know, the, the Marines have a mission. It is offensive. They're not going to go the way of the Buffalo or become absorbed by the Army. The problem is that the Navy never quite got beyond the point of recognizing that taking those islands was actually going to be more integral to the ultimate victory over Japan than it was. And really, and I, you know, it didn't really dawn on me when I was writing the dissertation or the, uh, or the book, you know, but if I, if I'd had, if I could go back in time, I would have probably said, look, what we're seeing actually in these exercises is also the seeds of doctrinal transformation going on from sea control to power projection. And when you look at the Central Pacific Offensive, you know, it was local sea control, but it was mostly power projection by naval air forces and by the Marine Corps. And, and, and that's one, what won the Pacific War. There was no 
single decisive naval engagement that that determined, you know, the outcome of the Pacific War. It wasn't even just a Navy war. You had a you had an entire theater devote, you know, con- commanded by Douglas MacArthur in the United States Army with an, a fleet in support. So, you know, had I could I go back and rewrite the book, I would have probably at least in the conclusion pointed out that look, you know, the Navy was it didn't know it was learning this, but it was learning it was learning about power projection as it was fighting these fleet problems. And the Marine Corps, while it, it, it did not get the rhetorical acceptance that it, it ought to have, nevertheless was, I think, was far better prepared to fight 1943 than it would have been had it not been involved in those exercises at all. And you're right, there were, I mean, you know, Tarwa is the, is the, is the example of, of an operation that had its moments, you know, you know probably a, a near-run thing, but, you know, the Marine Corps at least had an understanding of how an amphibious operation ought to go, and the problems that it experienced at Taro, and there were several of them, you know, were corrected, and no amphibious operation was, was perfect. I mean, you know, the Marines, they fought bravely, but, you know, they, the, the casualties were, it was, it was difficult. Those operations were extremely difficult. The Japanese were tenacious fighters. But, you know, the, the Central Pacific offensive succeeded, and it succeeded in large part because of what the Marines, if not learning in the exercises, at least were thinking as an organization of, of how they were going to conduct opposed landings. Just for, uh, as a reminder for people that may have been joining us late, um, and so I don't forget towards the end, um, our guest is Captain C.C. Felker, Professor of History at the U.S. Naval Academy, also the author of Testing American Sea Power, U.S. Navy Strategic Exercises, 1923 to 1940, which is what we've been covering uh, for what has been a really fast hour. And I, I wanted to, to, to roll something your way. I mean, at your core, you're, you're a historian. And, well, I'm, and it I'm, doesn't I'm, have I'm a naval I'm a naval officer who just happened to have yeah. the opportunity to get a get a graduate degree. So, well, it's like the legal definition of an expert is uh, the the people who know more than anybody else in the room. So, uh, there we go. And as a naval officer and a historian, uh, it is a perfect setup for the question I wanted to to ask you here. And it doesn't have to be the U.S. at a certain period of time, or it doesn't have to be this century even, but. Everybody is trying to look at a previous period of time where uh, leaders and decision makers were facing similar challenges that we're facing right now. And especially for um, a national security and the maritime domain perspective, is there, though not perfect, of course, is there a period of time that you think is a pretty good benchmark if somebody wanted to read up on to see how leaders made decisions to get themselves ready for what may be coming down the road that parallels roughly or is at least most instructive to where we are in the middle of the second decade of the 21st century. Wow. Uh, that's a good question. I'm kind of stuck on that. Uh, no, I don't, think there's, I don't think there's any one period of time. I think if you are... If you are interested in understanding where the Navy is now and, and what the, the, the challenges are, threats, challenges uh, facing the Navy are, 
I think you've got to look back to its entire 250-year history. I don't think you can just – I don't think you focus on a on – a, and that's a lot of reading. I get it. But you got to do it. I mean, that's – you know, the, we, we live in this world where, you know, I click on the Internet. I'm instantaneously – I'm all over these websites. You know, I don't have time to sit down and, and read something that's more than two pages. And I think that's the wrong approach. I mean, I think in this time we, – we need to expand – the time we have, or spend more time studying than less time. And I, I understand at senior senior levels, you know, the, the schedules are so are so tight that it's difficult to do, and that's fine. There's plenty of 06s and 05s that can spend that time, you know, doing that reading and doing and 04s and 03s. Let me, I don't want to ignore the lieutenant commanders and lieutenants that have the time or ought to be taking that time, you know, to do the reading, to do the study, so they can inform their bosses about. Well, let me give you some con- Let me tell you, give you some context about the. Uh, What's going on in the Western Pacific? Let's talk about China. Let's talk about, you know, sea control itself, which, you know, is Mahan's vision of sea control we, we, is not necessarily what we think sea control is. You know, it, the, 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 it was a wartime definition. In peacetime, the seas are open to everyone. Everyone gets to use the seas. That's the, that's the whole idea. Sea control occurs when you go to war, and you have to acquire, you want to control the seas, and you want to, to, to deny them, you know, to, to the enemy. But... When you're not at war, you may be competing out at sea. We may be competing economically, but the seas are, are open to all. But in order to understand that and to answer those those hard questions that the flag officers are going to pose, you know, it requires an officer corps that spends its time reading and studying and writing and then is not afraid to carry bad news to the boss or news that, an officer knows the boss may not want to hear. Uh, we've got that in the Navy. That's it's it's there. It's in the DNA. I think it's been in the DNA for the last 250 years. It's just a matter of, you know, of doing it. And that line, uh, people just need to start reading. So I'll tell you what. This has been CC a, a great hour, really fast. One of our one of our guests says it needs to be a multi-part series, but we wouldn't do that to you because uh, you've you've got good work to do up there. But <laughs> I know you're not collecting dust either. Are, is there um, any projects you're working on or anything you're going to be published here soon that if people wanted to, to hear more of what uh, Captain Felker has to think that they could look and keep an eye open for? Well, I mean, uh, I spent 2011 in Afghanistan working for the NATO training mission. Uh, they're building the Afghan army and, uh, and police force. Uh, came back from that, and with the, the historian that, that I relieved, we, uh, we put together a book trying to explain what we were doing in Afghanistan, building this army and police force. Uh, the manuscript has been sitting with Texas A&M University Press for an interminable period now, and I'm not really sure why. So anybody out there that can uh, can call Tech, you know, has, a, has a, an in with TAMU Press, uh, please give them a shout. Tell them to get this book out before I, uh, before I croak. That's the next big work. And essentially what we did was we looked at building the Afghan army and police force uh, you know, through the lens of modernization theory, which was uh, emerged in, in 1950s political social sciences that, you know, that, that argued that we could accelerate, you know, third world countries to modernity simply by providing them technological or technical expertise and money and equipment. And uh, it's interesting, it fell out of favor in the 70s with Vietnam, as you can imagine, you know, as it turns out, not you know, 
every South Vietnamese had an American inside waiting to break out. But, yeah. you know, it kind of lay dormant for uh, 30 or some odd years. And then we revived it in, in Afghanistan. And, you know, the story hasn't ended yet. But uh, so far, it's, it's it's not looking great. So. Uh, I, um, I look forward to, to, to seeing that, and maybe I'll pour a scotch before I crack it open. But uh, I really appreciate you taking time today to, to come join us. It's been a great hour, and I, I wish you and your midshipmen have a, a great end of the school year. Thanks. Hey, I really enjoyed uh, being on the program. It went fast. I, I was surprised. I didn't think I'd have enough material to cover an hour, Bill, so I'm, I'm happy. I'm going to go have a bourbon myself right now. Thanks a lot, Susie. Enjoyed it. Okay. Thanks, Eagle One. And thanks, everybody, for joining us for another edition of Midrats. And until we catch you next week, wish you all have a great Navy day. Cheers. Lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.